I'm so excited to be with you guys. We are in the Flawed Heroes of Faith series. This is week two. All for however many weeks we're doing this, we're talking about, yeah, weeks. We're talking about, we're zooming in every Sunday morning to a unique Bible character to learn what we can learn from their faith and, and, and in some cases also their flaws, learning what to do and what not to do. Last week, Pastor Eric did an amazing job teaching on the life of Samson. And I felt like I was in a thriller movie listening to the life of Samson because he had a wild life, but we learned a lot about him, both what to do and what not to do. Um, He ended his life in faith, but in a lot of ways he was flawed throughout, and so we learned a lot. Last week, this morning, we're talking about Joshua, Caleb, and the spies. Okay, so I know it's not just one person. Um, It's a couple of people. But so we're going to break the rules a little bit this morning, but really, truly feel like It's a word from the Lord for us this morning, and we're going to trust the Lord for what he has for us. So heroes of faith, heroes of faith, flawed heroes of faith. Before we dive into the story of Joshua, Caleb, and the spies, I first want to just mention and talk about just for a minute here, like we're talking about heroes of faith. Let's remind ourselves of what is faith. To be a hero of faith, what does it even mean to have faith? Sometimes that can sound so abstract and not tangible, but let's take a look at what the word says. In Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, scripture says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. So faith is a substance. There's substance. It it brings substance to our hope, okay? You might still be like, huh? (laughs) So let's read it in the Amplified Classic translation. It says, now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed. Faith is the title deed. Like you're not in the house yet. You haven't moved your furniture in yet, but you know the house is yours. That's what faith is. It's the title deed of things that we have hoped for being the proof of things Faith is the proof of things that we don't see and the conviction of the reality. I love this phrase. Faith is perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. So faith is saying, I believe what God's word says, even if nothing that I see, hear, taste, or smell gives me any understanding that it really is real. I don't have it for the screen, but Romans 4.17 talks about how Faith is calling those things that be not as though they were. We learned in Bible school that faith is just saying, hey, God said it. I I see it in my Bible that God said it, so I believe it, and that settles it, regardless of what it looks like around me. Faith perceives as real fact what's not revealed to the senses, and faith is trusting what God said regardless. Faith is trusting what God said regardless. Regardless, so you open up your Bible, you're taught on a Sunday morning, you find something in the Word that is truth, and you say, okay, God, I believe that regardless of how I feel. I believe that. Faith is trusting God. I believe that regardless of what it looks like. God, I believe that I trust you even though it's really hard for me to believe right now. God, I believe that regardless of how disappointed I am in the reality of that not being a reality in my life right now. God, I trust you. I believe you. I have faith, 
even if it's going to involve some sacrifices for it to fully come in its fullness in my life. So faith says, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going with God on this one. And our faith, as we, we know, our faith isn't in good vibes. Our faith is in the word of God. We build our life on the word, the Bible, right? And if God said it, then we can believe it, and that settles it, regardless. Amen? So we're talking about Joshua, Caleb, and the spies. And before we get into the moment of their life that I want to focus on, it helps to know a little bit of the backstory. So the backstory is God's people, the Israelites, were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, right? God raises up this leader, Moses, to set his people free. And so through Moses and the Israelites, God delivers them out of slavery miraculously, right? The Red Sea parts, and they plunder the Egyptians, and God does all these miracles to get them out of Egypt. And so they're in the Sinai, we're picking up the story where they're in the Sinai Peninsula, which is in between Egypt and the Promised Land. And so they've been freed from slavery, but they're not yet dwelling in the Promised Land, right? They're in this in-between season, in between the splitting of the Red Sea to the moment of the story we're picking up today, there's about a year's worth of time. The Red Sea is split, but then they're in the Sinai Peninsula, and Moses goes up Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments, and so God's building culture with his people. He's explaining how this is all going to work during this year between the Red Sea crossing and when the spies go into the land. So he's sharing the Ten Commandments. God's talking about the tabernacle and how they're going to worship him and the tribes and and all the different ways culturally and lifestyle-wise of, okay, when you go into the promised land, this is what it's going to look like for our relationship to be with you, right? But they're in the wilderness for a year, like, preparing. And then you mix that with the fact that the Bible says that there's 500,000 I want to make sure I got that. 600,000. There's 600,000 men, Israeli men, that God delivers out of Egypt. So that's only the men. If you add the women and children, that means that at this moment, 1.5 to 2 million Israelites are living in Sinai. That many left Egypt and now are in the Sinai Peninsula, living in tents. Who knows what? As a mom, I'm like, how are they playing? Like, how are they not getting hurt. They're in the desert. They're in the wilderness for a year on their way to this promised land, but all they've ever known is slavery in Egypt. And my heart goes out to Moses. Like, I can't imagine casting vision to two million slaves, ex-slaves, about this new lifestyle with God. And it was rough. And so, so anyway, so that's the moment that we're building to when the Ten Commandments had been given. They know how to op- operate with the temple and worship. And God's like, all right, you guys ready? Let's, let's start marching towards the promised land. And, and God says, but first, how about you send a couple spies into the promised land so you guys know what you're going to come into? And that's where we pick up the story in Numbers 13, 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses, saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, the promised land, Israel which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man and one leader from among them. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. And God says, I want one man from each family or each tribe to go as a representative of them to check out the land. 
And then I want Joshua to go on Moses' behalf. So there's 13 men that go out and they take 40 days to spy out the land. And um, 11 of them come back with a bad report and two of them come back with a good report. So let's pick it up again. In Numbers 13, 30 through 33, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up. So Caleb quieted the people and said, let's go up at once. He just came back after the 40 days of spying out the land. And Caleb, along with um, Joshua, says, hey, let's go up at once and take possession for we are able to overcome them. Caleb and Joshua came back with a good report. Like, dude, the land is sweet and it's ours. Let's do this. But the other 11 spies, verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him, the other 11, said, we are not able to go against these people, for they are stronger than we. And they, have, um, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all of the people who we saw were men of great stature, and they were giants, their descendants of Anak. Um, who came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So Joshua, a lot of you guys know this story, but let's look at it with fresh eyes. So Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report, a faith-filled report. God said the land is ours. We can take it. We can overcome it, right? And the other 11 came back with a bad report, a not faith-filled report, a negative report that said, you know what? I know God said the land is ours, but dude, it's loaded with giants, and we've been out here in the desert for a year. It's time to go back to Egypt. <laughs> like, ain't nobody got time to fight these giants. So this is how God responds. Let's pick up the story one more time in Numbers 14, 28 through 31. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me, the 11, shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, um, except for Caleb and Joshua, everyone else 20 and above, your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness, he's saying. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore that you would dwell in, but your little ones, everyone under 20, whom you said would be victims of this land that just devours its inhabitants, they actually shall know the land which you have despised. Woo! This is fierce. This is something fierce, guys. So the 11 spies that complained, that said, no, it's, it's, I know God said it's our land, but it's not. God says, okay, actually, you're not going to go into the land. Then you're going to die in the wilderness. And it took you guys 40 days to spy out the land, so actually you're not going to be able to go back into the land for 40 years because of your disbelief. And once all the in individuals except Joshua and Caleb that are <clears throat> 20 and older have died off, then you actually can possess the land. And can we be honest? This sounds a little severe. Have you ever doubted God? Have you ever complained to God? This sounds pretty severe, right? Modern culture would be like, whoa, God, chill out. These Hebrew boys are just feeling their feelings, right? These Hebrew boys are just speaking plain. These Hebrew boys are just reporting the facts. You said the land is ours, but there's actually big people in it. 
These Hebrew boys were just doing a little venting. They've been living in the wilderness for a year. Cut them some slack. Um, because it was hard. Like, like God did all these miraculous things, split the Red Sea. Like in some ways, God presented some things to the Hebrew boys on a silver platter. Parting the Red Sea and guiding by a cloud by day and a fire by night. There are some things that were just miraculous. But there was also the practicalness that was really hard. They were in this hard in-between season where, yay, we're free from slavery, but now we're living in a desert. And you said that we have this promised land that we've never lived and never seen. And it's hard. You know, most historians say in a unified voice that slavery in Egypt really wasn't that bad. Like as a slave in Egypt, they actually weren't the ones, most historians agree, they, the Hebrews actually weren't the ones that built the pyramids. That was actually actually paid, hired people that did that. And a lot of the Hebrew people were actually slaves, kind of like in Bab Babylonian. They were um, serving as cooks or attendants in the palace, and they were serving as farming people. Yeah, they weren't free, but a lot of times they could buy land, and they had a house. They had a roof over their head. They had a place to sleep. They knew where every meal was coming, right? So yeah, they weren't slaves anymore, but now they're living in a desert, like, Eric and I were just brainstorming different fun trips that we could do with the kids this summer. And we were looking at some really nice places that we could stay. And then we were like, what if we just rough it for a couple of the days and, like, go tent camping? You know, and at first, tent camping sounds fun. And we're like, yeah, maybe we could tent camp. We haven't tent camped in, like, a decade, but maybe we could. And we found this 20-person tent online. And at first, we were like, oh, that'd be awesome. Each of the kids could have their own room, and it'd be really fun. And then I was like, yeah, but remember, hon, I didn't like camping because all your food's in the cooler, and then, like, you walk on the dirt back, and I don't know, like, in theory, so that's, like, the Israelites in the Sinai Peninsula, they're tent camping for a year, and their food is quail, and, and you know, it's just not super fun. It's hard, right? Can we feel some feelings for the Hebrew boys? Like, this is tough. Like, we get it, Right? Their, their wives are probably complaining to them about how uncomfortable and unsanitary and unsafe the wilderness is for the babies. You know, it's, it's probably harder than they expected. They are hoping to go into the land, and there's already like a golden path paved for them to just build their houses. But no, it's harder than they expected, and it's this awkward in-between season, and they're tired, and it's not how they pictured. And so these Hebrew boys, these 11 spies that came back with the bad report, they were kind of just like justifying their words because of their feelings right? Like, this is just hard, God. Can't you just throw us a bone? Like, I don't know, just feeling our feelings. But God called it complaining, complaining. And recently, actually, before I was preparing for this message, I actually looked up the definition of complaining because I was trying to help out one of my kids who I said this kid was complaining and this kid said they weren't complaining. I said, well, let's look at what Webster's dictionary says about complaining. And so this is what Webster says about complaining. It's an expression of dissatisfaction or annoyance about something. Who do you think won that argument with my child? An expression of dissatisfaction. That's a pretty vague definition. An expression of dissatisfaction about something or annoyance about something. So check out God's perspective on the situation. Numbers 14, 26 through 27. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? 
modern culture, we can think that complaining is just, it's just what you do. You're just venting your feelings. You got to do something with how you feel. God said, you're, kind of, you're complaining, you're evil, and you're complaining against me, not even about the land. You're not even complaining about the situation. You're actually complaining against me. And I've heard the complaints with the children of Israel have made against me. Earlier in Numbers 14, Numbers 14, 11, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them. This is some strong language. This is a different perspective. A lot of times we can have our human perspective on stuff, or as a child, a childish perspective on complaining. But how many people know if you do something nice for your kids, or you plan something, and you took the time to do it, and you spent the money, and then you hear someone complaining about it, you take it personally. Like, I just planned this great trip for you. I just planned for this land to be yours. I, I've already promised, I know it's going to be hard and, and all that, but like, God's taking it personally. He's saying it's evil. He's saying it's against me. It's disbelief and it's rejection. God's saying, I feel rejected by your complaining. So the Hebrew boys thought they were just telling it how it was, just venting, just getting their feelings out. But God said, no, actually, you're rejecting me. It's evil and, um, and it's disbelief. Yikes. You guys doing good? So God takes our lack of faith in complaining of our words personally. When we complain to God, he takes it personally. When we don't trust him, he takes it as rejection. Two things we can learn from the spies, and then two things that we can learn from Joshua and Caleb. The first thing is this, complaining is a promise stealer. Complaining is a promise stealer. God said, I have good plans for you. I have this land that I want to give to you. Eleven of the Hebrew spies said the land's going to devour us. And the two said, let's go, let's take it. Go and show this slide. I just want to make it a little bit more tangible. These are all the names of the people, of the spies. This is the 13 people that went. There's a lot of names on here that we don't recognize and we don't know how to pronounce. No one named their kids after the 11. <laughs> Shemua and Shaphat and... Palti and Gaddy, no one's naming their kids that anymore. But Joshua and Caleb, we got a lot of those. But look at these names, because these are people that represent family and tribes in all of them. God said, I'm giving the land to all of you. And only two of them actually entered the promised land. Keep this slide up. God had the same good plans for all of them. God told all of them, this land is yours. There was no favorites. These same guys, all of them saw the same land. They went together, they went at the same time, and they left together. They ate of the same fruit. They saw the same people in the land. They experienced the exact same thing. But there was two different reports given. And the only difference, and the, and the only difference, the, the, the only difference between these names of people is what they said, their report, and their faith. And, and because of that simple thing, their words and their faith, only two of them made it into the promised land. All right, you can take that slide away. So I want to ask you a personal question this morning. I want to ask myself a personal question this morning. What is your recent report on life? 
When someone asks you, man, how are you doing? What's the report that you're giving them? Maybe you're in a season that seems impossible, like the Hebrew spies. Does your report look more like faith, or does your report look more like complaining? Because a clear message of Joshua, Caleb, and the spies is that it's only the spies that had the good report. God's moved by faith, as Pastor Eric was saying during worship. God's moved by faith and only faith. The currency of the kingdom of God is faith. The only two that entered the promised lands were those that had a good report with their mouth and faith in their heart. Woo! Because the words that came out of their mouth, the 11, were full of complaints, so they didn't enter the land. And you might be like, really? Like, do words have that much power? And does God really care that much about our words? He does. Like, he actually does. Check out a couple of these scriptures. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. And those who love it, those who are good with faith-filled words, they'll indulge and eat of the fruit of it. But those who don't, they'll, they'll bear the consequences of their words. There's consequences of our, of, their, of our words. And the 11 spies will echo that and shout that from heaven. <laughs> right? There's consequences to our words. Death and life are in the power of our words. What else does the scripture say? Proverbs 6, 2. You're snared by the words of your mouth. Our words can become a trap. James 3, 3 through 5 says a bit in the mouth of a, of a horse, a bit, you know, that thing that they put in their uh, mouth. To, it's tiny compared to the size of the horse. A bit in the mouth of a horse controls the whole horse. Just like a small rudder, a rudder compared to the size of the ship is tiny, but it's that small rudder, so a small rudder on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets the course. Just like a bit sets the course for the horse, a rudder sets the course for the ship, like your mouth. Just like a word out of your mouth that might seem of no account, but it can actually accomplish nearly anything. It directs the course of your life. This is important, guys. And I can't believe, I was talking to Eric, I'm like, have we never taught on this story the whole existence of the church? And he's like, we have not. And I'm like, it is about time. Because this is such an important message on the power of our words, the power of our report. The scripture says that the world is formed by, has been formed, framed by the word of God, and we're made in the image of God. Our world is framed and built on our words. If we could see into the invisible and the ways that our words are building and framing our life and our children's life, I think we'd choose our words differently. We live in a culture where words are a dime a dozen, and you can type, and you can tweet, and you can post, and you can do a lot with words, and people feel entitled to share what they're thinking, always. And there's so much that we could do a whole 10-week series on words and what the Bible says about words. But this morning, I want to encourage you to, to recognize that our words are containers. Our words are containers of either faith, a good report, or a bad report. And church, I want to exhort us to watch our tongue, especially in the in-between season. 
the in-between season, like the Hebrew boys where they got out of slavery. So they're free, God's moving, but they're not yet in the promised land. They're in the desert, they're in the wilderness, they're in the Sinai, they're in the in-between God's starting to move, but the fulfillment of the promise not fully being there yet. It's in that in-between season of not quite yet where our faith is really tested. Do we really still believe God when it's taking longer than we thought? Do we still really believe God even when it's harder than we expected? Do we still really believe God when it's going to involve sacrifice for our family, living in a wilderness? Do we still believe God even when there's giants in the land, in the in-between? I know, God, your word says this, and I know you promised this, but it's just taking longer, and I'm exhausted. Watch your tongue. Because God says that he's your provider. The word is clear. But when you're not experiencing the fullness of that promise yet, watch your tongue. God says that he's your healer, but you're not experiencing the fullness of that healing yet. Watch your tongue. When God says that his grace is sufficient for you, but man, it's harder than you thought. Watch your tongue. When God says that your kids are an inheritance from the Lord, and when God says that you and your whole family shall be saved, but man, it's a lot harder, and it's taking a lot longer than you thought, Watch your tongue. Because just because we think something or just because we feel something does not mean that we have to say it. Say it all you want to the Lord. Cast your cares on the Lord for he cares for you. Read the book of Psalms. David was unapologetic in his transparency towards the Lord. And there's some Psalms that start out that looks like he's complaining and he looks like, God, where are you? And this is a mess. But he, he's casting his feelings, he's feeling his feelings and he's casting them on the Lord and he ends in faith and says, but God, you are my God and you're going to come through. But he's having that conversation with God. We need to be careful about our confession publicly and privately because our words frame our world. All right, the good news, last thought, last point, faith in confession, if if complaining is the promise stealer, faith in confession is the promise receiver. So the 11 spies got it wrong, but Joshua and Caleb got it right. And the only difference between the two is their report, their words and their faith. Joshua and Caleb had been living in that same sketchy wilderness for a year. They, still, they had family members and friends that were complaining to them just the same. They ate of the same fruit. They saw the same land. They saw the same giants. But their faith and their words were different, and they received the promise. They dwelled in the promised land, and the others did not. A couple of scriptures, and we'll talk more about it. Uh, Mark eleven twenty two through 24. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Okay, for assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, whoever says have faith in God, and the first thing is, what are you saying? 
Whoever says to this mountain, this impossible situation, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt, I don't think it'd be unbiblical to say or complain, but believes those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you've received them and you will have them. We see this link between what we're saying and what we're believing. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Last one, James 1, 5-8. If you need wisdom, ask. Don't complain. There's a difference. All the parents in the room know the difference between complaining and asking. Don't complain to God about what you need. Ask him. Because asking requires faith. There's no faith in complaining. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He will rebuke you for complaining. But when you ask, can be sure that you're asking, that, that your faith is in God alone and don't waver, don't complain. For a person who, with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave in the sea that's blown and tossed in the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God, faith, and the world, I would say complaining. And they're unstable in everything that they're doing. Whoo, are we doing good? Can I get practical? Because some of you guys are like, yeah, you guys, like two months ago, you were up on the stage telling me to feel my feelings, and now you're telling me I can't feel my feelings, and I'm confused. <laughs> right? So back whenever, September, we had a whole series, Oh My Soul, and we said, feel your feelings, right? We're still saying that. We're not saying to not feel your feelings. But there's a right and a wrong way to do it, right? And there's, there's extremes on both ends of the spectrum, Okay, so on one hand, you might, this is one extreme. One extreme is saying, I don't have feelings, I'm ignoring my feelings, I'm ignoring my reality, I'm just going to speak the word, but I'm not going to engage my soul at all. I'm not going to live in reality, but I'm going to kind of put this band-aid of faith on. And I'm going to speak the word and kind of pseudo be in faith but I'm going to ignore the reality and my feelings and all of that. That's not what I'm saying at all, okay? That, that doesn't receive the promises. Because your faith isn't fully engaged if your heart and your soul is not fully engaged. So the other extreme over here is I'm feeling my feelings. I'm all up in my feelings, right? I know my feelings. My neighbors know my feelings. God knows my feelings. But my feelings have so overwhelmed my life that I can't get in faith because my feelings are leading my life, right? Those are the extremes. In the middle, here's what I believe. I believe um, Jacob and jo or Caleb and Joshua were somewhere in the middle. I believe out of all the 13 that went, I believe they were the most emotionally intelligent of the group. I don't think they were ignoring reality. They knew how uncomfortable the wilderness was. They had feelings and frustrations and things that they were thinking and feeling probably too. They saw the same occupied territory that God said was theirs. But I truly believe that they were doers of the word and they casted their cares on the Lord. They didn't ignore their feelings, but they dealt with them. 
They felt them. They casted them on the Lord. They had emotional intelligence to say, I'm feeling a lot of feelings right now. I'm casting them to the Lord. I'm not going to ignore them. And then in that vantage point of God's view on the situation, I'm going to recognize, okay, I'm feeling a lot of feelings, but God, what does your word say? God, you said this land is ours. So you said it. I believe it, and that settles it, even in light of my feelings. Does that make sense? It's a really important distinction. So church family, as believers that are maturing in the Lord, we need to discipline our tongue. We need to have um, control of our words. So what is the report that you're giving on your life? Is it a good report, a report of faith, or is it a complaining report? Because if the words that we speak are literally building our life, and if complaining is going to keep us out of the promised land, but faith will help us receive the promised land, or whatever that promised land is for you, then we need to make sure we're watching our words. I want to say this also. I'm even talking about pillow talk. Like Eric and I are not perfect in this, but we're really diligent to watch what we say, even in the bedroom when it's just us and we're exhausted at the end of the day and it's the pillow talk. Because we know our words frame our life. And so we cast our care on the Lord and we're honest with each other about how we feel, but we're always ending in faith. You can't, you can't have a loose tongue and expect your, you can't have a, um, a sluggish tongue and expect to receive the promises of God. We got to watch our tongue in all settings. Cast your care on the Lord. Be honest and transparent with him. But even with your spouse, even with your best friend, yes, be real. Don't, don't live in a, don't, don't avoid reality. It doesn't work out well. You think you're saying the right things and you think you're a faith person, but you can see from the fruit of your life that you're not. You're just avoiding reality. I'm not saying avoid reality, but discipline your tongue. Because here's what Hebrews 6.12 says, that you don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience. The patience part involves our tongue. Do we still believe? Are we still speaking to the mountain even when it's longer than we thought, even when it's harder than we thought, even when we've been in this Sinai Peninsula for years? Through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. Amen. Church, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. God, we thank you that you're a faith God. We thank you that we do not earn merits with you for good deeds. We thank you that we can't earn our way to you, but that the way that we have relationship with you, the way that we receive what you have promised to us is only through faith. And so Lord, we reconsecrate this morning. If you're here this morning and you're like, I've got a flabby tongue and I've got a complaining tongue and man, my tongue's not disciplined. My tongue needs to hit the gym. Just in your own way right now, would you link up your heart with this prayer that I'm praying? If you're like, Lord, I want to go the other direction. I need to, my tongue needs to hit the gym. Heavenly Father, Lord, we repent. We ask for forgiveness of ways that we've been tossed to and fro in the waves. Where in one setting we're in faith, but in another setting we're complaining. And let us not expect to receive anything from you. 
So Holy Spirit, help us be our teacher, be our guide of how to speak words of life, words of faith, a good report, not letting go of the promises of God, even in the in-between, even in the, in the seasons that it feels like forever. So God, we ask for forgiveness. We want to get it right. We want our words to frame our world by your word. We want our words to frame this next generation in the words that we're speaking over our kids, the words that we're speaking over our grandkids, the words we're speaking over this next generation. So Lord, we, we readjust. We want, to be the re, we want to be the good report crew. And Father, we thank you that through faith and, and, and patience, as we're saying and as we're believing, Lord, surely your goodness and your mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will fully receive all that you have planned for us. In Jesus' name.